In every service of Holy Communion all over the world, at the most solemn moment in the service, the priest breaks the consecrated bread and these words are said or sung. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. The priest and the people then receive the bread and the wine. The words are a cry for help and forgiveness as we come with empty hands to receive the grace of God and to begin our lives again Sunday by Sunday. The music you've just heard is a setting of these words, the Agnes Dei, Lamb of God, by the composer Samuel Barber and sung by the choir of New College Oxford. The use of these words in our liturgy is very ancient, but the words themselves are even older. They're taken in part from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him and declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John the Baptist's words echo the most famous song of the unnamed prophet who sang to the exiles in Babylon more than 500 years before the birth of Christ. This prophet has given us so many comfortable words, songs which have given strength and hope to the people of God across the generations and across the world in seasons of immense difficulty, like this one. The people to whom the prophet sings stand at the crossroads. As the end of their exile approaches, will they find the resources to stand up again and journey back all the way to Jerusalem and rebuild their nation to keep alive the promises to Abraham and the gift of the law through Moses and the testimony of the prophets to the peace and justice of God? Will they be able to come to terms with their own failures as a nation and as people and hear these words of forgiveness and tenderness of which the prophet sings? Will they be able to respond to God's call to be a light to the nations? Three times now, our prophet has sung to us so beautifully of the servant of God. The servant will be gentle. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a dimly burning wick. The servant's mission is not to Israel alone, but to the whole world, a light to the nations. The servant understands how to sustain the weary, yet has to set his face like flint in the face of his own suffering. The fourth song begins at 52.13 and runs through to 53.12. This is the longest of the four servant songs and the most graphic and the most personal and it is the suffering of the servant which takes the centre of the stage here. At one level, the song is a reflection on the suffering of the nation and the way God will raise up his people again, no matter how difficult the circumstances or how far we have fallen. But as Christians have read these words from the very beginning of the church, we have been inspired to see far more than this in the prophet's words. 
This is a profound reflection on the servant of God who is to come, God's anointed. The song describes the kind of leader, the nature of the king, whom God will send. The song unfolds the nature of the servant's mission and the meaning of his suffering. The book of Acts tells a story of a eunuch from Ethiopia, travelling home by chariot from a visit to Jerusalem and to the temple there. This eunuch has a longing for God, but because of his disfigurement and the fact that he is a Gentile, he will have learned in Jerusalem that he could never belong fully to the people of God. As he travels in his chariot, the eunuch is reading aloud from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. Acts 8.32 and quoting Isaiah 53.7 By a miracle of God, by the guidance of the Spirit, Philip the Evangelist draws alongside this seeker, and starting with this scripture, Philip proclaims the good news about Jesus. The eunuch discovers that after all, whatever his race and background and sexuality, he is acceptable to God. He stops the chariot and is baptised and becomes a member of the church, the first Gentile to do so, according to the Acts narrative. In another well-known passage at the end of Luke's Gospel, two disciples are walking to a place called Emmaus on the first Easter day. The risen Jesus falls into step with them, walking in the wrong direction. Jesus gives priority to the finding of lost sheep, the ones who are wandering away from the community in Jerusalem. And Jesus listens to them, to their hurt and grief and questions. And then we read this. Was it not necessary, Jesus says, that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. We don't know exactly where Jesus began his exposition of the scriptures, but there's a strong tradition supported by those words suffering and glory, that this song in Isaiah 53, formed his starting point. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter his glory. The prophet of the exile sees and captures in his song the mystery of the suffering of the servant of the Lord and its meaning for every generation. The disciples are expecting a Messiah who will come as conqueror to bring an earthly kingdom. This is part of the narrative of the scriptures. But there is a deeper story. Jesus comes to take upon himself the suffering and sin of the world and to give his life to establish the kingdom of heaven. God raises him then to glory. Our song begins with words which many have seen as describing the earthly life of Jesus, an unknown carpenter, from an obscure village in Galilee. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity, as one from whom others hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him of no account.
God comes in Jesus not to the wealthy and powerful, to the secure and outwardly beautiful, but to lepers and tax collectors and sex trade workers and the maimed and chronically sick and the poor, the people who stand in the margins, who are overlooked. The singer Gregory Porter has a beautiful song, Take Me to the Alley, which captures this profound good news that the Son of God stands with the rejected and overlooked. Take me to the alley Take me to the afflicted ones Take me to the lonely ones That somehow lost their way Let them hear me say Take me to the alley. Take me to the afflicted ones. Take me to the lonely ones that somehow lost their way. Let them hear me say, I am your friend. Come to my table. Rest here in my garden. You will have a pardon. This is exactly the message of Isaiah 53. Christ stands with and for and as the neglected. This is good news for people who have reached the end of their own resources, who are weary and wounded and exhausted, who know that they cannot get up by themselves, and who know that they have failed. It is therefore good news for us in this place now. We have to depend on the grace of God. But there is more. The servant comes not to reign but to suffer, And his suffering is to have a particular and profound meaning. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises We are healed. This is the profound and powerful mystery at the very heart of our faith. Jesus stands with and for the poor and despised, but his gift is more than solidarity. Jesus endures profound suffering. Christ is despised and rejected and spat upon. Though innocent, he is condemned to death. He is betrayed and abandoned by his friends. He is flogged beaten and crucified. The prophet's song sets out clearly that all of this undeserved suffering has a purpose even greater than God's identification with the abandoned. This suffering is intended to bring forgiveness and healing without limit or measure. The forgiveness and healing are for all. The forgiveness and healing are for us. And we can never come to the end of understanding how there is forgiveness and healing through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ the servant. The whole of scripture bears witness to this and helps us to explore how this forgiveness happens. The Christian church has been reflecting for 2,000 years 
on the mystery of God's goodness to us in Christ. Thankfully, we do not need to understand this gift fully. We are simply invited to receive it. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is the interpretation of his own death, which Jesus himself gives to his disciples at the Last Supper. This is what we remember in every celebration of the Holy Communion. In Matthew's account we read this. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The prophet sings of the identification of the servant with the lost, the last, and the least. The prophet sings of the redemptive meaning of Christ's suffering. The servant becomes the sacrifice the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, in John the Baptist's words. But if this were not enough, the prophet is given a third and even deeper insight into the mystery of God's purposes. The servant is to suffer, and suffer greatly, and suffer even to death. But even this is not the whole story. The servant's suffering is set in the context of his exaltation and his glory. And this is perhaps the deepest mystery of this fourth, seventh song. For the prophet does not cast this song as a psalm of lament, despite its themes of suffering and death. The song is cast rather as a song of thanksgiving. This is how it begins in 52.13. See, my servant shall prosper he shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. And this is how the song ends, in testimony to God's grace, in lifting up the servant. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured himself out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession with the transgressors. Isaiah reaches forward here, seeing through a glass darkly, but still seeing, in the words of Jesus on the Emmaus road, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things, and then enter into his glory. The fourth servant song is one of the very highest mountaintops of Scripture, a passage which draws together the deep insights of the theologians of the exile into the purposes of God and human suffering, a passage on which the writers of the New Testament draw over and over again as they seek to understand their encounters with Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, in his death and resurrection, and in the worshipping life of the Church. But how are we to hear these words today afresh as we walk through the pandemic, as we reassess our lives and the life of the Church 
and the life of the world. Let me offer you briefly three reflections. The first is to return again to the centre of our faith. To remember that the forgiveness we seek and need is freely available through faith. It is without limit. But also to remember that this forgiveness was won at great cost. The cost of the faithful witness of the people of God before the coming of Jesus, who witnessed to God's truth and justice, the witness of the Christian church down the centuries, and those who have given their lives to bear witness to the gospel, but most of all the love and passion of Christ himself, who endured suffering, who fulfilled his mission, who walked in the way of the cross, so that we and all the world might receive healing and forgiveness in this world and for the next. The experience of this terrible pandemic will, I hope, help us to revalue much of what we have taken for granted. The ability to embrace a friend, to mingle with crowds, to go out for the evening, to travel to see our families, to shake hands. In all of that revaluing, I hope that all Christians will return to a deeper appreciation of our faith and of the suffering and resurrection of Christ at its centre. The second is to be drawn back into you and to be reminded of our baptism. When he has understood this passage fully, the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot knows that at last, through Jesus Christ, whatever his background, he is able to belong to the people of God. He stops the chariot and cries out, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Well, I hope and pray that understanding the passage afresh may lead some to seek baptism, perhaps for the first time, to know and understand that you are part of the people of God, that you belong. And I hope and pray that others will be drawn from baptism to confirmation, to an adult declaration of faith and a prayer to be filled with God's Spirit, surrounded by the love of the Church. And I pray that all of us will understand more fully and deeply the value of our own baptism, that we have identified with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and that we might offer that gift to others. And third and finally, in the midst of so much that is difficult and hard, I hope and pray that we will be reminded of the need to hold on, to persevere. The letter to the Hebrews is written to Christians who have suffered a great deal for their faith. This letter unfolds to them in many and various ways over and over again, the wonder of the Christian gospel and of their salvation, and especially the wonder of Jesus. This is how Hebrews sums up the lessons of this journey, and it's the way I'm going to end this episode of Comfortable Words. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit with some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. May God give us grace to receive the love of God in Jesus Christ, his servant, and to encourage one another in this journey. Take me to the island 
Take me to the afflicted ones Take me to the lonely ones That somehow